Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why Midway USA offers super fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. From the nation's capital... This is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snowett. This is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast, Series 1, Episode 108, What a Guide Does When They're Not in the Water. These are the behind-the-scenes activities that help keep me afloat, no pun intended, as a fly fishing guide. Obviously, this podcast is brought to you by Ayobayo, A-Y-O-B-A-Y-O.com. And I may or may not have been snacking on a little bit of Biltong before I got this podcast going. All right, so with us today, we have Vion. Yes, sir. And how is it spelled? Uh, W-I-A-N. And your last name? Van Blomestein, which nobody can pronounce, so don't even worry about One it. One more time. Van Blomestein. Yeah, I was not reading it that way in my head. Say it, how, how were you reading it? Maybe Blumenstein. Like, yeah, I hear like Van Blumenstein. Yeah, or like you're a Dutch Jew. Uh, yeah, but exactly. it's definitely Dutch. Uh, well, so it's South Africa. It's Afrikaans from South Africa, right. but the Dutch settled South Africa, so right. it has some Dutch influence for sure. So you were born in South Africa. I was. And you moved here when you were in middle school? Uh, 13 years old, okay. yeah. So that's why I don't have the accent anymore, right. which I wish I did because it would help me sell the product, but I'm not much for faking, so I can do a country accent, but that's about all. Okay. And what is Afrikaans for those that... I only know because I went to South Africa in 98 Mm. And that's where I discovered Biltong. Okay. And it was like crack. Yeah. Every night at the bar with sundowners. Everywhere. It's everywhere in South Africa. Yeah. Biltong is a part of the culture. It's a very uh, meat-oriented culture. So barbecues, which we call brais. Uh, everybody Bush has fry. them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Everybody has them like once or twice per week, maybe more. You just like to grill your food. Okay. Uh, so Afrikaans is the language that we speak in South Africa. It's a, a little bit of Dutch mixed with maybe a little bit of German. Uh, and it kind of just evolved over time. Okay. So, but I mean, South Africa itself has something like, I'm going to get this number wrong, but I want to say like 13 official languages, uh, just because it's a very diverse culture. So English, Afrikaans, Koza, Zulu, I mean, the list goes on. My goodness. Yeah. And where did you move in the States? To Northern Virginia. Okay. Yeah. When we first moved here. So I've been here. So high school? Uh, middle school, actually like one year of elementary, then middle and then high school. Did you go to Madison or Oakton? I went to Oakton, but I actually grew up in Bristow, Virginia. Okay. So I went to Brentsville, Oakton one year, and then back to Brentsville. South Lakes. <laughs> All right, so you are from South Africa, and you moved here, and were you just hankering biltong as you were getting older? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, like I said, it really is a part of the culture. It's everywhere. So when we moved here and we weren't able to find it, uh, it kind of started as a hobby. 
my dad, my brother, and myself, we'd make it for ourselves every weekend just because we really missed it. And then our friends came around and they enjoyed it. And then it kind of grew in popularity with our circle. And we we're like, wow, we might be on to something. So that's kind of... And why can we not get South African-made biltong here in the States? Well, it's air-dried instead of being cooked. So at first, well, actually still kind of the USDA are a little weird about bringing in essentially uncooked beef, even though it's cured kind of like a prosciutto or a dry edge Brisciolo. beef. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so they're very strict. Uh, border protection is strict about bringing it in. So, I mean, that's what, how we started too. We would try and sneak it in all the time, but you get to customs and they see South Africa on there and they're immediately like, come on, do you have biltong in your bag? Be honest. So my wife, when she comes back from Australia, they already know she's got Tim Tams and chicken chips and chicken salt on her. What's Tim Tam? Oh, it's like this chocolate covered cookie and you're not allowed to bring it in you can but everyone that goes to australia just brings them back so they're like all right we already know you've got the food on you anything else (laughs) just assume you've got all the aussie food that's funny yeah yeah so same thing for biltong and drevors which is the dried sausage how do you pronounce that one again drevors wasn't even getting that correct so just like my name the w is pronounced like a v because it's afrikaans and drevors just translates to dried sausage drevors being dry and vors being sausage dr jones knows that we're eating them Oh, okay. He's the expert. Yeah. Oh, that's good. He knows. All right. So at what point did you decide, hey, man, I'm going to start packaging and selling this product? Basically, like late 2012 is when we kind of started doing that, packaging it, but we were still doing it in our kitchen because we just didn't know all the USDA rules. And we were selling it to our friends and we set up, uh, my brother actually set up a uh, Facebook page for us to start selling to South Africans in the area. And I guess somebody told on us, and one day a USDA agent showed up to our house, knocked on our door, my dad answered, and he was like, as a warning, you got to stop doing this. Uh, So we had to start looking into building a USDA facility, um, which was very expensive. Uh, And we actually found a South African very close to us that has a USDA facility. So we kind of partnered up with him because... Initial reviews, the building was going to be like two hundred, three hundred thousand dollars $300,000. And we were selling maybe like four bags of biltong at the time per week. So it just wouldn't have made sense. Yeah. But then we put it in one store and it sold really well. Which store was that? Uh, Rodman's in DC. Okay. Uh, they're like a specialty store. Yeah. It sells some international stuff. And it was selling really well. Uh, so we approached Whole Foods. My mom actually had a friend who worked at Whole Foods and he helped us get in which shout out to Derek if you're listening for any reason. Uh, He helped us out and we got into one Whole Foods and it was selling really well in that store. So I decided to quit my job and do it full time. That's awesome. Yeah. I still remember walking in Delray and seeing a package and the word biltong just caught my eye. And I was like, I have to buy this. And that's when I contacted you like two years ago. Well, maybe we should tell your listeners a little bit more about what biltong is. Exactly. So what is it? The process? Most people don't know what biltong is. Yeah, true. So let's Uh, give the spiel. So jerky is typically cooked at a low temperature for about six to eight hours. I mean, it really depends. People make it differently, but that's the gist of it. So six hours. Uh, Biltong instead is air dried for 14 days. So essentially you take a large slab of beef, you soak it in a brine, uh, you cure it with uh, vinegar, salt, coriander, and you hang it to dry in an air controlled room for 14 days. And it kind of just hangs there and cures itself from the outside in. So the result is a very juicy piece of beef with a lot of natural flavor rather than beef jerky where it's kind of like either a hard piece of beef or it's like super greasy. Uh, Because the beef is cooked, it's hard. And to counter that, a lot of people will soak it in sugar or chemicals because the sugar retains the moisture. Right. Yeah, you open a lot of jerky. It's kind of wet inside sometimes and slippery in the package. Exactly. So it's either too dry or too greasy. That's kind of the result. When you're air drying it, is it already sliced? Jerky is in like little cubes of beef, you could say. It's sliced like that and dried. Biltong, and I actually brought you a large slab. I'll show you later. Okay. Uh, essentially, it's a large slab of beef that's dried and then it's sliced and packaged. That's why if you really look at it, you'll see that the outside edge of the biltong pieces itself is a little bit uh, darker than the inside. All right. Yeah. And what, so is it biltong usually traditionally coriander? Yeah, coriander is a very, so biltong started with the indigenous people of Southern Africa. They were curing their beef and then the Dutch settlers arrived and they introduced things like coriander and a little bit fancier spices. So it was a mix 
of the indigenous people with the cultural influences that created Biltong. And are you keeping it traditional? You're not doing any crazy American flavorings? No, exactly. We really rely on the flavor of the beef and the authenticity. So it's uh, one of our family recipes. The only thing that we changed is the family family recipe used Worcestershire sauce, and we transferred that to Worcestershire powder because with the sauce, it has anchovies in it. And then on the package, you have to put a warning saying right. it contains anchovies. I usually buy vegetarian Worcestershire just to keep the whole hmm. bit that I don't eat fish. Okay, got it. Cool. Yeah. We even have like vegetarian hoisin sauce in the fridge, which I didn't know that exactly. was an option. I don't really know what goes in hoisin other than plums. When I brought Biltong to the pool, the neighbors were like, well, it's not spicy enough. They thought I was going to be bringing some jalapeno habanero gas station jerk. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people, when they see African, they're like, wow, this is going to be so spicy. But because we rely on the flavor of the beef, we don't want to coat that flavoring. So with beef jerky, all you're going to taste like teriyaki or barbecue or kill your taste buds with a habanero. Instead, uh, we mildly spice it with just cayenne and chili powder. So it's more of a flavorful kick rather than a burn-your-tongue kick. And they're probably just using cheap cuts of beef. If you're just covering it up anyway... Exactly. It's kind of like when you get a chicken sandwich at fast food. The only type of chicken sandwich is spicy chicken because you're just using cheap, flavorless chicken, and the way to cover it up is just black pepper. Exactly. And especially with our beef steaks, my divorce, uh, my brother and I were having this conversation yesterday when we were going over our business plan because our product is more expensive to make than jerky. So it's more expensive on the shelf. And we were wondering how people like Chef's Cut can just make a beef stick for a dollar. And I mean, the answer is just that. They ground it very fine. So it doesn't matter what cuts of beef they put in there. But you, we use eye round and top round, which is one of the better cuts. So you get a better consistency. So you really pay for the quality. Right. That's what it comes down to. What other stores are you in around here in Northern Virginia? Uh, like you said, uh, Let's Meet on the Avenue in Delray, uh, Rodman's, pretty much all the Whole Foods in the area. Uh, a lot of other small specialty stores. We're in uh, nine different beer tap rooms right now nice. just because our product goes so well with beer. I mean, IPA and Spicy Biltong is a perfect You company. do a lot of events at the local breweries. Uh, yeah, and I do it because, I mean, personally, I love beer. So it's a little bit of a, it's like a fun job to have. But uh, like I said, it pairs well. And I mean, it's all local the breweries are all local and they're kind of in the same boat as me kind of trying to make it out there. Right. So it's mutually beneficial. You know, what's an hourly day like for you? Whew. It's crazy. I mean, small it's, business owners. Exactly. I was actually describing this to uh, my girlfriend uh, two days ago. It's like having a baby. I mean, I've never had a baby, but I imagine it's like having a baby because, I mean, things just pop up all the time. We're like, eh, I'm hungry hypothetically, but I mean, it's just very fluid day-to-day changes. It's a lot of work. And like all the advertising, the deliveries, that's all done. Yep. It's all me. Advertising, deliveries, accounting, customer service, online sales. I mean, every aspect. How much biltong do you eat in a day? (laughs) Uh, Not as much as I used to. Uh, It comes and goes. I mean, I see it every day. Also, yours isn't as salty. I ate a whole bag of ostrich biltong that Mm -hmm. someone smuggled back. I thought I was going to die overnight from the sodium. Well, that's the thing in South Africa. The regulations aren't as strict, so you can put whatever you want in there. Where here, we really rely on a clean flavor profile, and we try to keep it as consistent as possible. So, yeah, it's not too salty. What else would you pair with it? I and mean, it's good for, like, uh, charcuterie boards. Oh, absolutely, beer. yeah. Beer. And, I mean, anything, if you want to cook with it, anything you could do with bacon, you can do with biltong. Uh, we put it on... Uh, Pancakes, it kind of sounds weird, but it's delicious. Uh, deviled eggs. I've seen that shaved on deviled eggs. Yeah, actually, uh, Rebellion in uh, D.C., uh, they're a whiskey bar, awesome bar. They uh, serve deviled eggs with our uh, crushed up biltong nice. on it. Yeah. So pretty much uh, avocado toast, uh, anything with bacon you could do with biltong. Awesome. Yes, sir. All right. Um, where can people find you online, and how uh, can they purchase? So... We're on Amazon, uh, and our website is yoba-yo.com, which I know is kind of hard to translate over the mic. So I also set up a couple of redirects. You can go to biltong.market, not with the .com, just biltong.market, or eatourmeat.co. Okay. And both of those will take you over to our website. And all social medias? Is yo usa All right. And what does the name mean? 
Uh, a yobayo is a slang term in South Africa. If you agree with something or if you enjoy something, you say that's a yobayo. Okay. So if you like our biltong or if you like this podcast, you say, hey, this podcast is a yobayo. Fantastic. Yes, sir. All right. Anything else before we get you back to your busy schedule? Uh, no, I'm just looking forward to uh, going out fly fishing sometime yeah. soon. I've actually never been, so we'll get you'll you have your there. hands full. Yeah, and we'll get you to beer tie, too. Absolutely. You might have a little bag of biltong in your jacket and hand out some nibbles. Oh, I, I would have to. Absolutely. <laughs> I always do. <laughs> do you just have like a bag on you all time? Oh, yeah. I mean, with the van wrapped, people will come up to me all the time and be like, hey, do you have any samples? And most of the time, I'll just give them a bag. I always try that with the beer guy. Uh-huh. It never worked. <laughs> the, the Miller truck. I'm like, dude, give me a bottle. Dude, that'd be awesome, but probably stricter rules. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, very cool. Thanks for coming out. No worries. Thank you for having me. All it's right. been fun. Cheers. Let's talk about what I do that the clients don't know about. The clients are always like, oh, your job is great. You're outside all the time. You get a fish for a living. It's not all the glamorous being outside, fishing, smiles, high-fiving, landing, fish, taking grip and grins, etc. There's a lot that goes on. It's sort of like an iceberg. When I'm out guiding, you're only seeing maybe 15% of what goes on in my job. Now, if you're planning on becoming a fly fishing guide like Glenn in New York, who I was chatting with on Facebook this morning, this might shed some light on how you might want to run your operations. If you are an established guide or been guiding for a while or doing it part-time and you have some extra tip tricks or techniques that might help me run my job better, please share them with me. You can email me, rob at robsnowwhite.com. Like I said, it's not always a glamorous job. It's not always outside doing what you love. I'd love to have a body of water that I can float, put in at a boat ramp, and have my car waiting for me several miles downstream at the end of the day. That would make me happier. I'd also love to have fewer bodies of water to fish more often. I've got several different types of water up here that I have to fish based on everything you're going to hear about in the next 40 minutes or so. I don't work out of a shop. I'm not affiliated with any guide services. I'm a solo one person. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Enterprise. It's all on me. If I screw something up, whether it's not getting to an email, a phone call, if I show up to the wrong location, if I'm late, if somehow the calendar gets mixed up and people get double booked... All sorts of things can happen when there's not another set of eyes doing this job. And I try my best. I'll admit there have been mistakes over the years. And I try my best as the sole proprietor of this business to keep my clients happy. And then that should keep them coming back or suggesting suggesting others to hire me. So I want to say that I'm always on call. I have to be ready at the drop of a dime. If someone called right now, it's 1125 on Friday, the 7th of December. If someone called and wanted to fish at noon, I would stop recording, go to my car, grab what's ready to go, and I could be on the water. I always have to have my equipment, I guess like a fireman, ready to go in case something happens. Now, how do I maintain myself as a fishing guide? I've already mentioned some of these in previous podcasts, but as clients have always wanted to know what goes on behind the scenes, I'm going to break down some of it. When I show up to work in the morning, I'm going to be clean. I'm not going to have rolled out of bed, all filthy and stinky and smelly. You know, Maybe if it's going to be 95 degrees and it's already 85 at sunrise, probably not going to shower and be ready because by the time... I get the car loaded and I'm on the road. I've already surpassed my cleanliness. But I want to be clean. I want my fingernails to be short. I don't want junk under them. I don't want to have body odor. I got to be wearing lots of deodorant, something that's going to last me up to 8 to 10 hours. 
I've got to be clean and presentable, just like you're going to a job interview for the first time. If it's the first time I'm meeting a client, you've got to make a good first impression. I'm going to be rested. I'm not going to be out till all hours of the night hanging out with people or preventing myself from getting a good night's sleep. You've got to be well-rested because you never know what the day is going to throw at you. There are no hangovers in this job. If you have a guy that shows up stinking of booze, they don't take their job seriously. I learned this a long time ago. I'll tell the story again that our neighbors and I were were having some cocktails and it lasted longer than it should. And I slept through an alarm. I woke up 20 minutes before I was supposed to be there. It's about a 16-minute drive. And I was probably still drunk. And I had one of the worst hangovers of my life. So two hour trip, it was really hot out. The clients only wanted to fish for a little bit and they were done, but it was completely unprofessional of me. And you learn those mistakes. It happens once it should never have happened, but it doesn't happen again. And now that I'm getting older in life and I told you in April that I'm never going to have a hangover again, it sort of eliminates some of the things that I have to avoid the night before. If I am going to guide, you know, one or two glasses of wine, Maybe uh, you know two fingers of bourbon, but nothing that's going to cause me to be dehydrated or have body or headaches when I wake up in the morning. You've got to be well hydrated. When I'm driving to a spot, I'm usually chugging water. I will always have water with me. The night before, I will usually eat, especially for Saturdays. I'm going to eat a pretty big dinner on Friday night just to fuel me, and I'm going to push a lot of fluids, so I am not going to be lightheaded or sluggish or slow in the morning. I'm going to be protected from the sun. Most of my clients never see you know, what I really look like out there. I'm always wearing sunglasses. I've got my hat. I'm covered up from the sun because, well, if I get sunburned, I can't work. And if I get skin cancer and die, I can't work either. And I try to present myself and act in ways that aren't going to be I guess, uh, offensive to clients. I'm trying not to blow snot rockets, hawk loogies, watching my language, just being professional. Now, there are some clients that automatically you know you can get away with some things uh, with some of the grosser body functions. But you've got to, again, maintain your professionalism because this is my sole source of income. Some of the annual costs, let me go through these. I haven't really bulleted what I usually do. I'm going to go through me, annual cost, website, calendar, rods, reels, line, leaders, leader material, pliers, trash bags, lanyard, flies, waders, boots, sun protection, and miscellaneous. Those are the bullet points. So annual costs. Clients sometimes will come from other parts of the country where living expenses aren't as much and they think maybe my fees are a little expensive. Well, There's a lot that goes on in the background of this. And like I said, it's coming out of my pocket, not the shop or outfitter I work for. Some of the big annual costs for me that rack up to thousands of dollars altogether are going to be guide insurance, my boat insurance, Commonwealth of Virginia business license, boat ramp fees, U.S. Park Service commercial use authorizations, variety of fishing licenses for jurisdictions that I fish, and the podcast fee, because this is also what I consider one of my ways of booking clients, is they listen to the podcast, think, hey, I want to go fish in a sewage outflow during a snowstorm. And hey, how about that? We can do that. I can accommodate you. So the costs add up. When I'm going through my accounting and I have to enter every charge, it's taken away from my income. When I'm out on the road and you know I've got a hankering for tacos, every taco I buy for lunch is coming out of my net earnings for the year. Sometimes it's better to be hungry or thirsty than stopping and buying a Gatorade or a Coke Slurpee and tacos. Those 3 to $5 add up. And at the end of the year, when I'm going through my receipts, and it's $5, $10, $18, $6, $3, all those little things add up. It's kind of like when you're at Trader Joe's and you're grabbing a whole bunch of $2 things and you get to the register and it's an $80 bill that you have to pay. It's like that. I have to think about my purchases. You know, right now I'm wearing a pair of boots, and the only thing separating me from 
the ground is the jelly insert. I've got huge holes in my boots and the strings are all coming out. But you know what? I can wear these because uh, I want to use that money towards you know maybe a new pair of waders because I bought new waders last year and that set me back a couple hundred bucks. Every purchase I make comes out of my pocket. Now my website, in this day and age, you've got to have a good, clean website. It's got to be up to date. It can't have any typos on it. It can't have broken links. The images should be updated, and my calendar needs to be updated so clients can go and see when I'm occupied so they know when to cross-reference their schedules to see when they can fish with me. Luckily, I did web development for the Food and Drug Administration a long time ago. However, that was web pages for visually impaired 508 compliance. So my web skills are not the best. However, having things like WordPress.org allows me to have a cleaner looking website than I used to have. I mentioned my calendar. My calendar is through Google. It's on my website. It shows when I'm busy, when I'm free. I will also, when I book a client, I'm going to send them a calendar request, and in that is going to have as much information as possible. So when I'm at the red light before I pull up to the spot, I can go to my calendar and cross-reference information about them. I can get their names, first and last name, hopefully including the people that they're with, including the client, guests, friends, spouses, etc., I'd like to have their mobile number in case I'm running late or something happens, there's traffic. I should have their email address in case I need to contact them that way prior to the event. I do provide waiters and boots for my clients at no extra charge. The deal is you don't get a complaint if there's a little leak or if the boots are too snug or the belt doesn't fit. I'm providing you some expensive gear at no extra charge. So hopefully my clients are going to just thoroughly accept that because I just saved them from going out and having to buy their own waders and boots and all the other gear. I provide everything for my clients. So I need to have waiter size and boot size and just a general idea of why they hired me and what do they want to get out of the trip. I needed to know what to bring for their specific reason for hiring me. Is it casting lessons? Is it catching more fish? Is it learning a new location? Is it learning a new location at a specific time of the year? Do they just want to hire me for basic skills? Are these people going to the Bahamas next week and want to learn how to double haul in the wind and target practice? There's a variety of situations for what I'm hired. It's not always just catching fish. I'm an educator and instructor first, and then I consider myself a guide second. Rods. And a lot of this goes on, if you follow me on Instagram on Fridays between 5, 4 and 5 p.m. in the summer, I'm always going to post pictures of what I'm going to talk about now. So on Friday nights is usually the big night for guide prep. I've got to get my rods ready to go for the next morning. There's no getting to the river and taking out my rods and setting them up, putting them together, unless a client has never seen it before and needs to learn exactly how to rig a rod. Uh, Our Secretary of the Interior, Mr. Zinke, could have taken one of my lessons. Apparently, he had his reel backwards as an outdoorsman, and has been getting reamed for that online the last couple of days. So the rods, they have to be correct weight and length for the trip. I have to make sure that the rods are in working order. They're not broken. There are no chips or dents in them. They need to have a tight reel seat. I need to make sure that cork is relatively clean, no major damages. I need to have one rod per client plus spare rods in the car, If we're waiting somewhere, if we're camped out on shore, I'll have extra rods with me. As always, if we're in the boat, there are rods rigged and ready to go. My reels need to be working. There can't be anything loose on them. The drag has to be in good working order. The knobs have to be screwed in tightly. The foot of the reel needs to be locked down. I don't want my reels wobbling when there's clients. Everything needs to be in good working order. There can be no grit inside. I just sent two reels back to Orvis that were just not working. One handle broke off. The other one, the arbor and the spool were just grinding against each other. Then again, these are 18 to 19-year-old reels. I expect this stuff to happen over time. My fly line for my client needs to be clean. There can be no cracks in it, no hinges, no 
90 degree bends where the plastic is broken and exposing the line on inside. They should have full working loops on the ends, nothing hanging off, no broken tags. If it is a 40 pound amnesia knot, it needs to be clean, no kinks in it. If it's a doubled over hand tied loop, it should be nice and clean, glued down, nice tight knots on it. And if it is a prefabricated factory made welded loop, it should not have any cracks, kinks, or nicks in it. I don't want anything to fail. Then again, I should have all the tools with me in case something does fail. The line has to be the proper weight. Are we overlining because it's windy? You need to factor that in. And then what type of line do I need? It needs to correspond to the wind, the location, the weather, the species of fish, and fishing techniques. Do we need shooting heads for long-distance casts over weeds? Do we need super-fast sinking lines for fishing out of a boat? Do we need sink tips for fishing from shore? Do we need sink tips for swinging through fast current? Do we need just generic floating lines for casting 10 feet from the boat to shore? All those things have to be factored in, and I should have rods rigged and ready to go for each of those situations so I can grab them straight out of the house and get ready to go in the morning or afternoon or evening. Sometimes my guide trips are not first thing in the morning. It might be based on the tides or schedules, and that will factor in to when I have to leave because of traffic here. I give myself five minutes per mile. The leaders on the rods have to be the right length and weights to match the rod, the species, and the fishing technique. Is it a 30, 20, 12-pound leader? Am I tying up 20, 12, 8-pound? It depends. If it's a 6-weight and lower, it's going to be a 20-pound butt. If it's an 8-weight and up, it's going to be a 30-pound butt. And when I had a trip last summer with 18 clients at a vineyard, I had to sit down in my garage and tie 18 liters of all various lengths and strengths to match the rods and the farm pond we were fishing. That was one crazy event. That really shows you what goes in to prepping 20 rods, liters, reels, having them organized and setting them all up before clients arrive. Are there liters that are unusable? Do they have knots in them? Are there kinks, abrasions? Are they the right length? Is the tippet too short? All these things have to be examined. You got to pull all these off and redo them if they are not acceptable to my standards. If you're fishing shad day after day, those rods and reels are pretty much standard rigged. Whenever we leave the river, everything should be ready for me to go down with clients the next morning, ready to go. Leader material, I already mentioned that. I use a variety of Amnesia, Berkeley Vanish, Seaguar, and what's the other one I use? Uh, I can't remember. I can't remember my butt material. I mentioned it before. Uh, and then there's things you have to make sure you have on you. I've mentioned before, I always have a nail clipper on my keys. That could be because I get to the venue and I notice there's dirt under my fingernails because... On the way to my car, I saw some weeds in the garden and pulled them and got dirt under my nails. All right, I can cut my cut my fingernails if I need to. But let's say I forget my tools and I need to cut line. Now, I can bite 4X with my broken canine tooth. It's got a, a straight edge to it. So I can slice some line, but 20, 30, 10 pounds, I'm not biting that. So if I don't have my tools, I always have my nail clipper on me. One thing I always always have is pliers. I'm not talking about ones for electric work in the house. I'm using P-Line pliers I got on Amazon, and I have those in a holster on a special utility belt, and that's just to ensure that I can take hooks out of big, toothy mouths, I can cut line, I can smash barbs, I can smash split shot. This will be on my waist. If we're spring fishing up at Chain Bridge, I'm using to have a small machete on the belt as well. The reason I have pliers specifically is because snakehead mouths. I'm not putting my hemostat near their mouths. Now, again, for snakeheads, if we're going to a place where they're going to be, going to have to have trash bags if the clients or I want to take one home. Those fish produce so much slime, you can't throw them in your trunk. It is going to look like mucus exploded everywhere. If you're listening to this on time, Art just 
witnessed four snakeheads being released into Burke Lake here in Northern Virginia. If they establish themselves, if one of them's a female and one of them's a male, that's all it's going to take. So we can start going hunting snakeheads there now, which will be kind of interesting. My other major tool is going to be my lanyard. I'll switch back and forth to one I wear around my neck to one that I wear on my waders or my waist. The things that I always have to have on my lanyard are nippers. It's either going to be old broken nail clippers without the lever or a fly fishing specific nipper. I'm going to have a hemostat with clamp and scissors on it so I can cut and knot and do everything my pliers need to do except go into a snakehead's mouth. I'm going to have extra strike indicators on there, thingamabobbers until the bottom breaks off. Those usually can just be on the swivels on my lanyard. I'm going to have lip balm. That's just going to be able to pop off so I can keep my mouth from getting sunburned. I'm going to have a whistle on there in case something happens and we need a blow for help. I'm also going to have a hook file on there just to sharpen and hone and de-rust or unrust, however you would say it, hooks that I may have pulled out of a box or out of the boat that may be a little bit dirty. Now, my flies, I've got to go through all my flies. Uh, I've got boxes that are specific for a species, maybe shad or stripers or largemouth. I have location-specific for chain bridge, for gravelly point, for four-mile, for urban lakes or creeks. Depending on where we're fishing and what we're fishing for, I've got to swap out flies in and out of boxes into my shoulder bag. Are the boxes full and organized? Do I need to take all the flies out and reorganize them? I'm going to take out flies that are rusted, if they're dinged up, if they're damaged. Make sure your flies are dry. Save those little silica packets that come in food or shoes. You can throw those in a fly box to make sure that it absorbs moisture after you're done. There are plenty of days where I'm driving home with fly boxes on the dashboard drying out or I come back home and I just lay them out in the garage floor so the wind will dry them out. Can't use damaged flies. If they're slightly damaged and I just don't want to use it for some reason, I will put it in a bin. I've got a whole box over here of flies I'm giving out at Beer Tie on Monday. And if they've got a piece of mono knotted on the eye, I already know that fly A has been used and B has the barb smashed. So I can automatically take one of those out and reuse it and know I don't have to smash the barb. Always smash the barb. What about my net? I've got different nets based on different species and different locations. Are we waiting? Are we standing on shore? Or are we going to be in the boat? Net size, net bag type, all those go into factors. I do not want gizzard shads touching my nice nets. So I bring my beat up old Cabela's net down to any place where we might be fishing for Hunting boots are a critical component of any successful hunt. Whether walking a short distance to your blind or trudging miles through rugged terrain, your feet are carrying the load. Without the right boots, you could give up early and lose out on that trophy just over the ridge. At Midway USA, we make selecting boots for your next hunt easier. With just a few clicks of a mouse, you can decide on what's important, like waterproofing, insulation, size, width, and savings. For just about everything for shooting, hunting, and the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com shad and get into gizzards then again if you don't bring the net that usually guarantees something big is going to bite waiters i told you i provide waiters for my clients at no extra fee they have to be clean i don't want mud and stains on them got to make sure they're the right size small medium large you can empty the pockets out make sure there's nothing in there People leave all sorts of stuff. When I cleaned out the ones, when I worked at Brick Outfitters, you'd find cash, cigarettes. Sometimes you'd find a, a you know a joint in there mixed in with the cigarettes. People hide all sorts of things in there. Another great thing about those little pockets is you can put your little pack of Kleenex in there. It's always nice. Uh, nothing in pockets, no leaks. These things are all gooped up, all up and down along the seams where there are holes in them. They're not the most aesthetic waders, but they're going to keep you dry. And I just have to make sure that they're going to work for the clients. Now, my boots, again, have to be relatively correct size. I can do 7 through 11. Make sure they're not full of gravel and grit. I will bang those out if whatever was in them hasn't already spilled out into my car. I want to make sure everything's dry. I don't want to take sweaty waders 
from the day before and have a client put them on and they're still damp inside. Same with the boots. One benefit of having a damp boot, though, is it is easier to lace them up and put them on. Uh, I want to make sure my laces or cables are intact. Nothing's broken. There's no fly stuck in them. And I want to make sure the correct soles are on based on the location. If we're going in the boat, in and out, there's no studs allowed. And I want to make sure there's matching pairs. Uh, There's been at least once I showed up with a left boot and not a right boot. But I had a spare pair in the trunk. So luckily that saved me. And then when clients go home after leaving me with their wet waders, they don't have to worry about the stink in my car. If I leave my waders in there overnight after fishing certain spots, my car is going to be really nasty. Belts, want to make sure I've got waiter belts of a variety of sizes so we don't have to adjust them. And depending on the model of the waiter, I want to make sure that I have shoulder straps for them, suspenders. This time of year, we're getting into some colder weather. Clients like to show up with these giant, freaky, freezy size gloves on, and that's just not going to work. I usually have fingertipless gloves in my car. I may have extra hats. And just things to keep them warm. If a client is miserable, the day is going to suck. And there's things I can put up with. I can't handle being cold and wet. So I will always have extra stuff in my car. Last week, luckily, I had a down vest in there. I've got an unopened package of long underwear in case somebody needs them. Just extra stuff. My car sometimes will have enough gear in it to run a small shop out of. And the stuff has to come in in the house, in and out of the garage based on the season and all the other things. Want to make sure the gla- uh, the gloves match as well. You don't want to show up with two right hands. I think that happened to Holt once when we were steelhead fishing. Sun protection for myself. I want to make sure I've got my hat, my face mask, sun gloves, my sunglasses, extra sunglasses for clients. Make sure that they're clean, no smudges, that they've got a strap on the back, and that they do not smell like potpourri. And I still cannot get the smell of potpourri out of my Costa and glasses. Uh, I want to wear, wear long sleeves in the summer, sunscreen for my face and clients, sunscreen for the body. I always have cans of aerosol on the boat for spraying my feet and legs if I'm not wearing pants. And I usually have safe for fly fishing face sunscreen. You should always be wearing SPF sunscreen every day when you go out regardless. Just a good thing to have on you. I want to have clean socks in the car for clients that are going to wear waders. If they show up in the summer in flip-flops, they probably didn't bring socks with them. I don't send out a checklist for clients. If they want to know what to bring, they can listen to this and it would bring clean socks. Like I said, extra sunscreen. I'm going to have toilet paper in the boat, on shore, and in my car just in case somebody has to go. Most of the spots we're fishing are fairly close to a restroom. Just want to be prepared. I'm going to have my first aid kit. I'm going to have my iPhone Ready to go, charged, probably an extra battery pack. If we're in the boat, we can charge it because the stealth craft allows you to charge things off the battery. If we're in the boat or on shore somewhere, it's not raining, I will have a DSLR with me. Let's talk about my boat. My stealth craft ATB is my office on the water. It's got to be clean. No leaves in it, no sunflower seed shells, no tippet, no flies. If people were smoking cigars, no ash or butts. It's got to be clean and presentable. The rods have to be rigged, secured, and ready to go. I want to make sure that my gas tank in the car is full the night before. There's only two gas stations in my neighborhood, and they're not really close. I want to make sure the gas tank is full for the outboard and that there is additives to it for ethanol. I need to ensure that the trolling motor battery is fully charged and the boat battery is fully charged. I need to have my life jacket and life jackets for all of my clients. I need to have air horns. I need to have throwable devices and lights ready for nighttime fishing. Safety, safety, safety. Another thing for the car is a folding chair. Clients don't want to sit on the ground to put on their waders or they don't want to sit down on the back of the car. If you're not used to walking around a trailer hitch, even if you are, you're still going to knock your shin on it. So walking around the back of my car is not going to be the best idea. Plus, if you're wearing shorts and your calf brushes up against my trailer hitch, you're going to get rust on there that might not come off for a while. Things I don't provide for clients, I don't provide water. If they're thirsty, I'll share mine, but I'm always going to have extra water. It's better to have more than not enough. 
it is completely embarrassing for me if I have to borrow water from a client. Uh, sometimes they bring extra water and they offer it to me, but if I go through all my water and I'm rowing for six hours straight and somehow I go through it all, it spills, whatever reason, and I have to ask for water from them, I'm, I'm usually embarrassed by that. I do not provide fishing licenses for my clients. I don't check for them. When they get to the water, that's not my job. That is the job of park rangers and other jurisdictions. I give them information about what they need for license. I don't check them. I'm not going to feed you on my boat. I might have some biltong on the boat to share. Unless you're going eight hours or more, I will have lunch. I'm not going to carry granola bars and snacks in the boat. People that show up with full bags never end up eating anyway. Granola bars, chips, salsa. You'd be surprised with the accoutrements people will bring in a boat and it never gets touched. Leave the booze at home. That kind of sums up what I do on a daily basis. That was a lot shorter than I thought. Just sat here typing information on what it takes to be a guide. Some of these things might take 30, 40 minutes to an hour beforehand, but I just have to make sure I'm presentable, my gear is presentable, everything is working, the clients know where and when to meet me, and everything's going to run as smoothly as possible. Uh, a couple other stressful things for me is going to be lunch for an eight-hour day. You know, when I worked in Colorado, we had lunches made by the Italian shop next to us, people with turkey, ham, vegetarian. We'd go pick up a sack lunch, and it'd be ready for clients. When I worked in the Keys, we had similar. I would show up at the, the runway or the boat ramp with pre-made lunches from the restaurant across the street. Good to go. Now, I'm the only one here, so I've got to go procure those ingredients. Sometimes it takes several stores. That takes time. The more I spend on food, the less I'm making at the end of the day. It takes extra time out of my day to procure the ingredients, and then it takes more time to put them all together and get them packed into coolers, containers, get silverware, napkins, all those things together. Then if the clients decide they don't want to eat lunch, well, all that money got wasted. I've had clients that I say, do you have any dietary restrictions? They say, no, I make these awesome sandwiches, and then they tell me they're not eating bread right now, and they throw all the bread in and they eat the ingredients of the sandwich. That's rather upsetting. And the butcher shop next to our house closed recently, which is where I got a lot of my really high-end meats and sides. And now I have to rethink where I'm going to be doing that for next season. Leader material, don't stress about that. It's just where it's in this part of the podcast. Uh, I carry a Plano box with me. It has spool holders. I carry 8, 10, 12, 14, 20, and 30-pound Spools with me with a spool of 4X hidden in there if I need a really small dropper. Most droppers are going to be on 8-pound. I'll have a sling pack if we're wade fishing, a shoulder bag if we're shore or boat fishing. Ingredients go back and forth based on what I can fit in the sling pack. I'm going to always carry a pen in my car and one of my bags for clients to write checks. They don't show up with cash and they don't want to put it on their card and they want to write a check. If they don't have a pen, then I have to have one. Always carry business cards. You're going to bump into people at boat ramps, people that are jogging, sightseeing, walking around, other anglers that see what you're doing and want to hire you for help. Always carry business cards, preferably in something that's waterproof. Just had to throw about 60 business cards that got wet in one of my bags. And in the large bag, I'm going to carry split shot, stripping guards, a stringer, a fillet knife, maybe a fish mallet. Other things that I need that I can carry if I have the room. Not always necessary if we're wet waiting. Don't always need all those. Those are some of the smaller things I can keep in my sling pack. Now, the biggest, most stressful thing for all of my job is the weather. If the weather's bad, it's either going to cancel or reschedule, and I'm not making money that day. And I'm going to monitor the weather from minutes to hours before to a week or two in advance. Great modern technology allows me to have all these things on my iPhone. And the wife thinks I'm obsessed with weather, which is, yes, I am. But the way it affects my job is much different than hers. Hers is, can the bus get to the Pentagon? Is there snow? Is the bus late? Does she need a 
be picked up from the bus if it's raining. For me, certain things I cannot work with. So I'm going to monitor all these things on my phone. Uh, water is obvious. It's where fish live. I need to decide on water levels, where to take clients based on all of these. And clients might want to fish one spot, but we can't because the water could be uh, completely screwed up at the moment. So on my phone, I'm going to check water levels, temperatures, and clarity. That's obvious. That's uh, There's plenty of apps for that. Things that I have to watch for the predictions are rain. Is it going to rain in the morning? Is it going to rain while we're out there? Is it going to rain the night before? Well, about five days before. If it rains five days up in the mountains, how long is it going to take for all that flash flood water to get from the Shenandoahs and all the Potomac tributaries upriver from that huge watershed down here? It cannot rain here but have a huge storm in Pennsylvania, and that might somehow flood into our river. It's a massive watershed, and I just happen to be in the middle section where it opens up and get pretty nasty. So I'm always watching the rain. We had an event last summer where I had a group of six for four hours wet wading on the Potomac, and massive storm came through. It went from a 20% chance of rain at noon to 100% chance by 7 p.m. The pool party was canceled. People came back here. It was torrential rain. We got about five to six inches in one night. I thought the next morning the water would still be being soaked up by trees and puddles in grassy areas in the gutter and not having flown from all the asphalt and run off into the river. And I was wrong and we canceled an hour before. The water level jumped about a foot and a half a mile upstream from when we were going to wet wade. And that was going to be rising, and that actually blew the river out for a couple of weeks. Most Fridays this past summer, 2017, we got massive thunderstorms with uh, huge amounts of moisture, and it just ruined wade fishing and sight casting for most of the summer. My neighbor Tom gave him a whole bunch of smallmouth flies, and he never used them because he never got a chance to go wade fishing up at Point of Rocks. I'm also going to be checking wind. There are several things that the wind can affect if we are out in the open. It's going to affect our casting. It's going to change what flies and leaders and lines we use. If we're going to plan on being on the boat, it's going to blow the boat in circles. It's going to make us cruise the shorelines too fast. It's going to blow us into the shore or docks or whatever. The wind in the boat is extremely stressful for me. If there are days where I get up before client and I notice there are trash cans blowing down the street, there are branches on the road, the shed door is open, the soccer balls in the backyard are not where they were the night before, the bird feeder swinging and the lights are flickering. That's what I'm going to cancel. That happened a couple of weeks ago where we got a massive front, came in on a Saturday, and by Sunday morning we had, we had 40 mile per hour winds and all the water was blown out of the tidal creek. It was dry. The same thing happened yet the next day. The winds were less, but that water just had not come back into that creek because it was being blown out at incoming and outgoing tide. Doppler, I'm going to check wind speed, precipitation, directions, everything I can monitor on there. I will be watching to see which way that precipitation is coming. And it's going to help us when we're on the water to know if we need to bag it up or find shelter. We once were caught out in a flash flood and luckily went to our cars, came back five minutes later. That water went from... And I said in minutes, it went from ankle deep to about three to four feet deep in minutes. And that storm was not supposed to have happened, which is why I booked a client that afternoon. Summer thunderstorms will just come out of nowhere sometimes and completely ruin things. And you got to watch out for lightning. I don't want to be outside with a conducting electric pole in my hand. And I don't want to be out in the open where I'm the tallest thing that lightning can hit. Additionally, lightning can hit you from 10 miles away, so it's always good to be monitoring your phone. Air pressure, that might turn some fish on, might turn some off. I have clients that are waiting for all things to line up for striper fishing, low air pressure, a little bit of precipitation, dusk, outgoing tide. When those things line up, I can predict what's going to happen, and I'll call that client and be like, let's go. I'm going to check the current water levels. I'm going to check what they're going to be tomorrow, the day after that, up to a week in advance, knowing if we're going to cancel, rebook, move to a different location, etc. I've got to be on top of all of these things. I'm going to be checking air temperatures so I know how to layer for myself and how to have extra gear for my clients. 
you know, do we have to worry about icing up our guides on some days or is it the wind chill that's going to affect us? Um, all things I take into consideration. I have to consider the moon. If Is it going to be a higher high tide or a lower low tide with the moon? And tides as well. Some tides are going to bring fish in. When tides leave, they're going to go out. If you're in a creek, if you're in the main river, you know where I want to stand might be underwater at one day, and then the next day it's not. So where we're going to fish, where we're going to put the boats in, where we're going to wade, everything can be affected along the tidal Potomac because of the tides and moons and wind. It's all a factor. We can avoid some of that by going inland or above the tidal zone. And I think that's it for the majority of the things that I have to think about and deal with as a guide. There's a lot of tying flies to replace things that get lost, species-specific flies. There's the office. There's procuring the tying materials. Um, It never ends, but I love what I do. And if you're a burgeoning guide, like I said, hopefully this will maybe help you out if you do or don't want to become a guide. And other things to think about. Let's see. There's anything you think I left out, like having bad breath or uh, having to take some gas X in the morning. You know, those are all things you, you figure out. Always have extra stuff. You know, it's like measure twice, cut once. Just be prepared for anything that can happen. Things will happen. People are going to get sunburnt. They're going to get dehydrated. They're going to break gear. They're going to be late. They're going to show up to the wrong spot. You name it, it can happen. So be prepared. It's always nice when clients show up with their own gear that I don't have to worry about the wear and tear on mine. And I'm always going to tie them a new leader when they get there. I don't know what their leader is. I don't know what the tippet brands are. If it's been broken, nicked, scratched, if it's too short. People will show up for shad fishing with 5X tippet on. That's just not going to fly. If you're a guide, let me know what you think. If I missed out on anything, if you're a burgeoning guide, hopefully I answered some of the questions. Stay hydrated. And have fun. It's uh, it's an honorable job to do what you do out there. I can't wait for the shad run to start because this is the doldrums right now. There's not a whole lot of sunlight. You can't fish late in the day. There's not a whole lot going on right now. That's why I wish we had just more consistent year-round fishing. Love to have a spring creek here or a nice put-in and take-out on the Potomac down where I live just doesn't happen there's so many more places i could access if there were more boat ramps around here there are very few boat ramps where i live and i guide the waters where i live and you got to make the best of what you have that's the whole theme of tpfr is fish where you are and make the best of what you have and that's what i do on a daily basis if you want to buy any of those flies that I use with my clients, you can get those on the top right of my webpage. I expect to see some of you at the Virginia Fly Fishing and Wine Festival, the new No Longer Somerset show, the Lancaster show, and anything else that might be coming up in the new year. If you're hearing this now and you want a gift certificate for fly fishing, if you can't figure out shad, your double haul casting in the wind, where to fish in April versus August, have your loved one buy a gift certificate from me. I'll ship it to them, and we'll get you on the water. That's it. Short podcast. Please go to iobio.com and purchase some of this stuff. It is awesome. Locally made, small business by somebody that immigrated to our country. You can't get more of the American dream than that. Look forward to seeing some of you at the shows. Make sure you let me know you're a listener, and uh, I can't wait for it. Cheers. Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, please go to www.robsnowwhite.com.
want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Tune in to West Marine's Life on the Water, presented by Costa Custom Boats, every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. Spend your Saturdays with life on the water. Join Captain Brandon Simmons for fishing, diving, travel, and so much more. You want to succeed. You want to fish. You want to be one of the greatest. Oh, look at that thing, dude. Wow. Oh. <laughs> Let's see what kind of trouble we can get into today. Don't miss life on the water. Every Saturday night from 7 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. <laughs> the destination for outdoor entertainment. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment.